well, it's me again. <laughs> Sorry. But uh, there's two problems. Um, there's a problem of being underprepared, and then you struggle. And there's also the problem of being overprepared, and that also is a struggle. That will be mine today because I've had a lot of time to work on this. Actually, the last time I spoke on Acts, which was way last year, I, I intended to go through the whole first chapter, but we didn't get all the way through it. <laughs> surprise, surprise. And so I was prepared with the last half of Acts chapter 1 way back then, and then I've had all these weeks of thinking about it and the first few verses of chapter 2. This is not this is not good. It was good for me. But you may have a hard time following me. Turn to Acts chapter 1 if you would please. Well, that song 302 uh, Albert Simpson. Those guys they think they think on a different level. They think these those writers of those songs Many of those poets, they just, they're just way over my, they have such a lofty way of writing and of saying things. How many times I, I can, I have thanked God so many times for the, uh, what I believe was the, uh, a special outpouring of the Spirit of God somewhere in the early 1800s and in that time frame. And we had, we had such a, um, blessing of, of, of grace to the church by the writers, the commentators, the songwriters. What that has been, I believe that to be the latter reigns. He gave the former and the latter reigns, and then that sustained this, will sustain the church uh, to the harvest, which is coming now very soon, no doubt. And what a, how many times have I thanked God for those men and women that wrote and composed and, wow, this so much helped us. We left off in Acts chapter 1, and we might as well uh, pick it up at verse 9, I guess, to, to get into the story. Uh, Acts 1 and verse 9 and when he had spoken these things that would be the Lord of course when he had spoken these things while they beheld he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight and while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up behold two men stood by them in white apparel which said also unto them Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Just pause a second and think of that song that was yesterday, today, forever. You know, when when he comes for us, it will be this same Jesus. That's what you know. That's a part of that song. That last verse, that song. How beautifully said. Yeah, this same Jesus, this same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven. Verse 12. 
Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the Mount of Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon Zelotus, and Judas the brother of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brethren. And in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, the number of the names together were about a hundred and twenty. Men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus. For he was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. And it was known unto all the dwellers of Jerusalem, inasmuch as that field is called in their proper tongue, Akeldema, which is to say, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his habitation be desolate, and let no man dwell therein. And his bishopric let another take. Wherefore these men, which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto the same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. And they appointed two, Joseph called Barsabas, who was surnamed Justus, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whither of these two thou hast chosen, that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they gave forth their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. We'll stop right there for now and probably struggle to get there. <clears throat> we ended last time right there when the Lord Jesus was taken up from the disciples into heaven. And the angels testified that this same Jesus that went up into heaven shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven. They anticipated a return to the, to the very place even that he was taken up. Indeed, that... Uh, is still expected. Yes, the Lord Jesus will come and put his feet on the Mount of Olives. That is even told to us by Zechariah the prophet in the Old Testament. So there's no question about that. This is, it is very similar in a sense. What they had witnessed was similar in a sense to what Ezekiel saw. And when you get into the later chapters of Ezekiel or earlier, the glory of the Lord, it, it left the house. It left the city on the, from, on the, and went eastward outside of the city. And it lingered there at the Mount of Olives for a little bit as though it was hesitant to go. And then at last it, it, it rose up, it left, it, the, the glory departed. And the house and the city and the nation was left Ichabod. And so, but Ezekiel then also prophesied at the end of his writing, I think it's in chapter 44, that the glory of the Lord would come again to that very place, to the Mount of Olives, east of the city. 
to enter into the new Jerusalem and so forth. But that's so in a similar sense. It's kind of a similar sense that happened then, and the Lord Jesus went out to the Mount of Olives, and that's where He was raised up uh, and uh, translated up into heaven, and and uh, and would come again in that very place. Now, Luke is a very masterful uh, historian. He, he gives accurate details as he tells the story. You can picture it in your mind. He tells you enough about the places and the names of things so that you can actually form a mental picture of it all. And, he, and, he's, and he's very, very deliberate in the things that he shares and, te- and tells us. And as we study his work, we recognize... And this is, and this would be particular if you want to study the Book of Acts uh, and his Gospel also, the Gospel of Luke, which we have recently gone through slowly <laughs> with Caleb. And we discovered in the Book of Acts or in the, in the Book of Luke that Luke is not just telling the story; he is telling the story, but it's clear that his purposes in telling the story and his methods. In the way he presents the material that he's telling you, he's, te- he's teaching doctrinal truths. He's teaching some important lessons, and, 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 and marvelous uh, things are, are brought forward by the way that he arranges his material. We'll find the same thing true in the book of Acts. And if you want a good study on these two books to bring, that helps to bring that out more fully, look at Dr. David Gooding's books on, on Luke, uh, um, I forget the name of that book. It's, anyway, his commentary on the Gospel of Luke, and then on this one is uh, True to the Faith, is the name of the book on uh, his commentary on the book of Acts. Because uh, he points out that as, as Luke gives us these details, he's going to give us actually a powerful apologetic of the Gospel itself and what it is, what its distinctives. Uh, not just how the church grew and developed and the church age began, but he uses that history and those uh, events to teach us and to lay down a powerful and irrefutable apologetic of what the gospel actually is and, 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 uh, and what it is not and how the gospel would uh, <clears throat> lay the foundation for the church age and I think on into heaven. <clears throat> so that said, look for more important things than just the story. That, that gives me a, a, an immediate, as I was reading this, they returned them to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olivet, which is from Jerusalem a Sabbath day's journey. I wonder why, wonder why Luke put that note in there. A Sabbath day's journey. He didn't have to say that. He could have said it's just a short ways. It wasn't on the Sabbath, by the way, that this happened. The Lord's ascension was on the 40th day after uh, his, his resurrection. And I, I don't care how you count that or how you start that. I mean, you've got to hit it within a day or two in the week. His resurrection was on the first day of the week. And so maybe if you count from the day before or the day after, however exactly you start your count, any way you do it, when you get to 40 days, you're not on a Sabbath. You're in the middle of the week. Just the way it is. You can't count it out any other way. This was not a Sabbath. And yet the, the Luke 
by the Spirit of God, puts that little note in there. It's just a Sabbath day's journey away from Jerusalem. <laughs> I'm not going to answer that because I just wanted to uh, encourage you to think about it. Uh, then from there, Luke says, he names, when they were come in, they went into the upper room, and he names the eleven apostles. This is the fourth time in the New Testament that these men are named. I, I, I point that out and emphasize it because I've been told that, uh, that the New Testament uses the term the twelve apostles as a kind of a uh, sort of a you know it uses the twelve sort of representative of all of the office of apostleship calls them the twelve as a representative of apostleship and it's not not that it shouldn't isn't really re- that there were just twelve or you know well I, I I beg to differ and and the reason I beg to differ is because these twelve now eleven thanks to Judas's apostasy these are named and they're named four times in the New Testament Matthew Mark Luke names them in his gospel and is compelled by the spirit of God to name them again in the book of the Acts you uh, I don't see how you can question the fact these were very specifically chosen by the Lord Jesus himself and they were sent by the Lord to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And they were told when he commissioned them back in Matthew chapter 10, when he first commissioned them, don't go to the Gentiles or anybody outside of the house of Israel. The Israel is your focus. But then when he, when he ascended, and we did this last time, we looked at it last time, the fact that when he ascended, he gave them a new commission, as it were. You are going to be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, in Judea, and then he expanded it out now in Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. So the twelve have, a, have, a, have an expanded mission. But it's first to Jerusalem and Judea. And the pattern follows through the book of Acts along those exact lines. But it will go all out to the end of the world. But it is these twelve. And their intention was, or their, their commission was first and foremost, to bear witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the 12, apostles, or the 12 uh, tribes of Israel. And, and then from there, and from that springboard, out to the rest of the world. But uh, <clears throat> how important is that? Israel must see, first of all, and firsthand, eyewitness uh, testimony. These are eyewitnesses that Jesus rose from the dead and that he ascended up into heaven and so forth. But the main, main point was that he rose again from the dead. <sighs> and so I think from that play, from that and from other places in the scripture where Paul defends his own apostleship, but he is careful never to claim, nor, in fact, he even... Uh, points out clear that he is not one of the twelve apostles. Yet he is truly an apostle by the Lord Jesus himself. He, he makes it very clear that he personally saw the risen Lord Jesus. And why was he, why was he so 
adamant about that fact is because that is one of the requirements of apostleship. To be an apostle, you must see Jesus risen from the dead because that's what the mission of an apostle is for, to be a witness, an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. Very important. And so there are no apostles today, obviously, unless, unless, as he did with Paul, he appeared to someone personally, but he hasn't chosen to do that. He could, but he hasn't chosen to do that. You know, right? Okay. Anyway, there's a little more to this, but we'll get a little further down here. <clears throat> this breach, uh, you know, by the way, just make mention of the fact that um, that Luke wonderfully mentions the fact that they were all with one accord in one place. This is like the first mention of several times when that, when that phrase is mentioned. With one accord in one place. What a beautiful thing that is. What a beginning. What a beginning for the, you know, for the people of God. To be with one accord in one place. This is one of the few times. And I know the church has not yet been born, but will be shortly. And when it is born, it'll be like the only time when the whole church is met together in one place. <laughs> because as time went on, there were churches planted, local churches here and there. Each, the truth concerning the, the, the church of Jesus Christ, his body, that truth applies to every and each local church. But... They'll never again be joined together, all meeting together in one place until the rapture occurs. And we are caught up together. And that's the beauty of that powerful statement. Together, those who are dead in Christ and those that are alive and remain will be caught up together in him. And what a beautiful time that will be. I'm reminded of way back when, after the flood, oh, that awful, that awful time. And yet, after the flood occurred and the waters abated and there was Noah and his wife and his uh, family, his sons and his and daughters-in-laws, and they built an altar and they offered a sacrifice and they, and they worshipped the God of heaven. And that was like a new beginning on this earth, right? And the whole world, the whole population of the world were together worshipping God in one place. Never happened since then. <laughs> it will happen, though. It will happen. There will be a time when this whole world, the whole world, and everyone will gather together. We read about that in Revelation chapter 5, and what a, what a time that will be. But that, I digress a little on that. But Peter says there's, a, some, there's, a, there's some business we have to tend to. If we are going to stand up as, a, as the twelve apostles witnessing to the twelve tribes of Israel of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we've got a problem. We, we, we've got somebody missing in action. He's gone. He went to his own place. That needs to be, that breach in the apostles must be closed. And it must be done before they're called upon to bear that testimony. I think that's what was in Peter's mind. And I think that's what was in the Lord's mind. But what surprises me, and I've puzzled over this, and I don't have a good answer yet for you. I probably never will. Lord, why didn't you do that? Why? The Lord was with them for 40 days after his resurrection. 
And he was teaching them things concerning the kingdom of God. But he did not appoint a new apostle to replace Judas. Why not? He did not tell them what it was going to be like when he returned. The rapture of the church and all the... He did not even explain to them the mystery of the Gentiles and the Jews brought together in one body in Christ. These marvelous mysteries, many of the beautiful doctrines that he left, he saved for Paul, the apostle, to unfold the Lord Jesus in 40 days of talking and teaching with with his apostles. He didn't bring up those subjects. I think that's amazing. I think that's amazing. And and someday we're going to we're gonna, we're, gonna, we're just going to enjoy the possibility with him. Why? Why was that? Why, why did you? How could you have saved that? It's so important to him. But yet he saved that that mystery, those details, because he wanted the Apostle Paul to open that up. That was his will. That was his purpose and his program. Because the Apostle Paul was the was the apostle to the Gentiles, and this was information that would come to. The Gentiles, through the Gentile to the church, to the to the world, to the Jews. The Jews would be stand back and be amazed at this. How can this be? Well, this breach in the apostleship needed to be needed to be closed so that they would have a, a full face, all twelve standing before them. Verses 16 and 17 says, Men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled. It's necessary. This be, this is by the Holy Spirit that it was spoken in the apostle or in the Psalms, and Peter makes no bones about it. The Spirit of God wrote those Psalms through David, <coughs> and we need to uh, we need to close this gap in the apostleship. Uh, <coughs> Many people have questioned Peter's authority to do this and his uh, wisdom to do this his right to stand up like this and, and take this, this bold step after all they're not indwelt by the spirit of God yet the Holy Spirit has not been given in the sense that he would be given which would happen at Pentecost in the next chapter that was one of the criticisms of Peter for doing this. He didn't have the Spirit of God. How could he know what he was doing? And, and, uh, and that he was not instructed to do so. Although, now that is not, a very, not very well founded because Peter points to the Holy Scriptures. This is according to the Word of God. He says this must needs be fulfilled. So Peter felt that he was commanded and directed by the, Spirit of, by the Scriptures. He wouldn't have gotten this evidence of the scriptures except by the Spirit of God, and yet they weren't yet indwelt by the Spirit of God as they will be in a day or so, or ten days or so, however long it was in that period when he did this. The Holy Spirit, in recording this, gives no criticism of Peter in this. And Matthias is numbered, we read in the last words of this chapter, with the 11 apostles. I think he has every right to do this because uh, 
he's working in accordance with the scriptures to fulfill the scriptures and moved apparently well I can't you can't say exactly I say moved by the spirit of God I think he was I think he was directed by the spirit of God and they operated in accordance with the scriptures notice he says there's a criteria that has to be met he says uh, uh, verse Wherefore of these men, which have accompanied with us all the time, this is verse 21, that the Lord Jesus went in out among us, beginning from the baptism of John, unto that same day until he was taken up. Must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. Now, where did he get that criteria? Is that just something he made up? Was that a decision that he made? No, that is biblical. Well, at least it came from the Lord. But we want to turn back to... uh, Oh, let me get find my text here. I'm way off of my notes. John chapter, I think I can find it, 15, I believe it is. John chapter 15. I have it written down, but I can't see that. That's the problem with overprepared. You just go all over the place because you've got it all in your head. Um, I know I made notes of it, and I think it's important. And so I'm going to find this. Um, there the end of John chapter 15 verse 27 you also shall bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning (laughs) that's an important note you've been with me from the very beginning and that uh, is what Peter said this is that's a criteria that we must meet if anybody else is going to take the role that Judas vacated must have been with us from the very beginning from the baptism of John all the way until the time when Jesus was uh, taken up from us there were 120 there to choose from I don't know where the other 380 are because Paul says that the Lord Jesus appeared personally in resurrection to 500 actually above 500 brethren at one time in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 you read that but there's only 120 here right now. <clears throat> the, other, the other 380 probably were Galileans. <laughs> Maybe lived in Galilee. Lived out in Judea someplace. We're not there in Jerusalem at the time. But there's 120 here to choose from. And out of 120, they found two that fit the qualifications. That had been with them from the baptism of John right through to the end. And had not... Uh, They've been all along. They were they were definitely qualified, and so they asked the Lord Jesus in prayer to point out to them which one of these two that meet this qualification might fill this ministry. They couldn't obviously tell on their own, and so uh, they asked the Lord to give them the direction they needed. Cast lots, and it fell on Matthias. 
Matthias. I just, we don't know about how he came to know the Lord or meet the Lord in the first place. We see the interesting thing that he is, uh, he has uh, been given a surname. Let's see, where's that? Appointed to Joseph, call, oh, I'm sorry, called Barsabas, or Barsabas, who was surnamed Justice. I got them mixed up. Joseph called Barsabas, who was surnamed Justice. <laughs> I wonder if he has a, a history with the Lord similar to like Peter or something like that, where he says, the, the Simon, son of Jonas, uh, you should be called Peter. He gave him, he, he surnamed him. <laughs> maybe, maybe, uh, maybe Joseph or Barsabas had a similar kind of experience when he met the Lord. The Lord gave him a surname that would be fitting for him. Could be. And then Matthias. And the law fell on Matthias. Back in the end of the book of Mark, we read this wonderful, this wonderful expression that the disciples went forth and preached everywhere the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Amen. That's the last words of the book of Mark. Now, the Lord is in heaven, absent, if you will, as far as his physical appearance. Or, uh, they couldn't see him in the midst but they knew him with them because he, would, he had promised them, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Lo, I am with you always was the Lord's personal words. And if anybody could take that to themselves with the apostles, right? I have chosen you that you might bear witness. I mean, so that they knew that the Lord was with them and working with them and with signs and wonders confirmed that right on through. It was the Lord in their midst. It was the Lord with them. So they prayed to the Lord, Oh Lord, which one of these two have you chosen? And the lot fell on Matthias. Most of the commentators go take pains to say, We don't, we don't, you know, they were okay to use the lot in, in that era because they're kind of sort of, they're sort of like grandfathered into the Old Testament or something. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, they had some kind We don't do that anymore. I think the main reason we don't do that anymore is because we don't have the faith that the apostles did. <laughs> they were so sure that the Lord was with them, that the Lord heard their prayer, and that the Lord would respond in a real way, that they said, Lord, which one of these two? They cast lots, and with absolute confidence, if it came out on Matthias, that's the Lord. Well, we, we don't have that kind of confidence anymore, do we? We're pretty, we're pretty weak in our faith. Nowadays, I don't think we've advanced, I'm afraid, in my opinion. That's my guess on that. We don't do that anymore because we don't believe the Lord intervenes like that anymore. Uh, I'm sorry, but that's my thoughts. I'm, I'm probably, I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. I like to be wrong sometimes. The same thing as rolling dice? What's that? The same kind of thing as rolling dice? Well, casting lots? I don't exactly know what the actual thing is that they had. It was something similar to that. It, was, it would be similar to the Urim and Thunum that was in the breastplate of the high priest. One was, and this is, again, a little unclear, but it seems clear to me, 
One was black and one was white. They were two stones, exact same shape and size and feel, but one was black one was white. It was, they were kept inside of his breastplate pocket. And when an issue came up that they had to resolve, and said, yes, sir, is it a no? It's a no. We got a black. Or it's a yes. We'll do this. The Urim and the Thunim. That's what I believe. That was it's a similar kind of a casting of lots. That was, uh, and God had confirmed to them from years and years and years of history that he was uh, not above actually telling them what he wants. And so they, uh, they believed that in this case as well. And so you can kind of see, uh, since from my what I have already said, that I think Matthias was the right one. He was one of the twelve. Paul was never one of the twelve. Never considered himself one of the twelve. Was never going to be one of the twelve. These are the twelve. And, uh, and there are no others that fit into these, the twelve. There are other apostles. There were 500 that the Lord appeared to. And of 500, some of those could well have been given the mission or the the, the office of apostle in, in their particular circle or whatever they did because that was up to the Lord he ordained apostles for the church we read that in Ephesians 4 and, <clears throat> but, and, then, and there are a couple of other men uh, uh, Barnabas uh, oh no not Barnabas yeah and uh, Silas I think and even Timothy might be uh, called an apostle in, in the book of Acts and so it's not wasn't exclusive apostleship wasn't exclusive to the twelve, but the twelve was the twelve specially selected as a testimony to Israel of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? I find an interesting parallel in my mind the way the um, the, the prophets are laid out in the Old Testament. We have Isaiah. Jeremiah and Ezekiel the, these well actually of all of the prophets in the Old Testament you have the big four Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel and then you have the minor prophets they're called we know them like that the, the big four three of the big four Isaiah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel are so very similar in the way that that their prophecies come, one is before one before the the Babylonians come. Jeremiah is right during the when the Babylonians are currently taking over and busy at it. Ezekiel after the the uh, but they were all for Israel concerning their Babylonian captivity. That's what it surrounded. They were telling Israel that they had gone the wrong way by Isaiah. You've turned, you've turned aside. You've gone your own way. They were telling Israel that they had sinned. They had broken the covenant. That's what Jeremiah focuses on. They were telling, Ezekiel was telling the children of Israel that they had defiled the holy things. They had, they had polluted the holy things of God, the holy place, and all of the ordinances, and the priesthood, and everything defiled and polluted by the children of God. They were, in fact, at enmity with God by their pollution these three great prophets and then you have Daniel and he's different he's different from these other three 
he tells us all about the Gentile rule in the world, the kings, the big empires that would come and rule in the world, and all that would happen, and all this would all turn out eventually to the Son of Man, or the rock cut out without hands that would destroy the Gentile rule and set up the kingdom of God would come and reign on the earth. The Lord Jesus would come and so forth. So Daniel stands apart from the other three major and in a, in a wonderful worldview kind of a way. Um, and then following that, you have the minor prophets. And the minor prophets were known to, as and called the Twelve. Because there are twelve minor prophets. I don't know. Do you remember John Biorley teaching us the song? The Twelve Minor Prophets? The minor, minor prophets, minor prophets. There are twelve of them all. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. Hey, all right, I forget it exactly. I could do it if it weren't right now in front of everybody. There are twelve of them all. You remember, don't you? You don't? You guys do. I wasn't dreaming it. <laughs> anyway, that's the layout of the prophets. And the New Testament begins with four gospel messages. Three of them, you know, are called the synoptic because they're so similar in a way, the way the stories and the way that they're laid out. But John is the oddball. I mean, and I don't mean it in the wrong way. Different, the unique gospel with the Lord Jesus being presented for a savior for the world, not just Israel, but the world is in view in the Gospel of John. So similar in my mind to these. And then that's followed by the Acts of the Twelve. The Acts of the Twelve. Now, of course, it's bigger than that because half of the book is is dedicated to the Acts uh, of the Apostle Paul, which is not one of the Twelve. But anyway, you get the point. You see the similarity, right? The way that's laid out. I think that's fascinating and bears more study. We're going to run out of time, so let's just uh, focus on a couple of things here. Look at uh, verses 18 and 19. Uh, Luke is going to give us the details, uh, some details that are not given elsewhere. Now this man, speaking of Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity, and falling headlong he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. And it was known to all the dwellers of Jerusalem, insomuch that that field is called, in the proper tongue, Akaldema, which is to say, the field of blood. I think that was a good note. You could have hit that just after Aquadema. That would have been perfect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Luke is not focusing on the details of the field's purchase uh, because we know that from Matthew's account of the whole story, uh, the priests are the ones that actually purchased the field. And uh, they took the money that Judas had gotten in his ill gain over his betrayal of the Lord Jesus, and he threw it down in the temple, and they said, well, what are we going to do with this? Oh, oh goodness, we can't, uh, we can't defile the temple. 
in their hypocrisy and their 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 formal religious position, which was contrary to everything. And and and, and Luke doesn't even mention these pathetic derelict priests. It was he came in and he came in and tried to repent, as it were, as, at least it would appear that to them. I have I have I have betrayed innocent blood. Uh, that's your problem, not ours. What is that to us? Get out of here. Go away. We don't have any. That's what their purpose was. They're priests. They're supposed to help the sinners. They're supposed to present sacrifices on behalf of the sinners and bring the sinners to God. This derelict, worthless priesthood. Reeking, reeking with the stench of hypocrisy. They don't deserve to be mentioned, and they are not. Luke doesn't even mention their names or that they even exist. Nor will they be mentioned in eternity unless they repented. But the whole divine thing, the whole story, I mean, rings of of a divine irony in a way. Matthew tells us that what they purchased, and and so Luke gives the um, credit for the purchase to Judas because it was his money. Matthew tells us what they purchased was a potter's field. A potter's field on the, on the edge of town. And, and that is, that's, just, that's just so like, just like, so like our God to lay this out like that. Uh, no doubt it was a pit where clay had been dug out uh, to make vessels out of. You know, some potter had owned this, this area and he had excavated the clay, the good clay that he could make vessels out of. Vessels for, for use, useful things. Vessels for beauty, maybe. A vase, as they say. You know, I, I said vase, but no, it's a vase. You know, but it's a beautiful thing, you know. They make vessels for beauty. They make vessels that are valuable. He made his living by making these, these clay vessels and things out of the clay that he dug out of the potter's field. And I'm suspecting that he had he had used it up. He pretty much gotten all of the clay that was useful in that field, and now it was kind of like an empty thing, uh, kind of a useless area anyway. It had no real, not much value to it. What are you going to do with it? Well, well, hey, here's an idea. Let's buy it and make a graveyard out of it. A graveyard for the. Uh, for the homeless, you might say. Or the, the, the bodies that are not wanted, the foreigners that are in town, they die for whatever reason. Nobody's going to claim the body. We're stuck with this dead corpse. What do you do with the thing here? Put it in this, put it in this common graveyard and, and bury it away out of everybody's sight. It'll be completely forgotten. There'll be no name. It's a potter's field graveyard for the unwanted and unknown the anonymous. Wow. When you think about that, this world was God's potter's field, wasn't it? He extracted the clay from which he would form in his love and personally, personally, I, I often think of that in, in uh, 
Genesis chapter 2, and what a blessed thing that God, he gave us the wonderful record of creation in Genesis chapter 1 from one perspective, boom, 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 the way he did it and the stages that he did it in and so forth. But that's a, then he tells us the story all over again in chapter 2 in a, from a whole different perspective, from a very personal perspective where the name Jehovah is brought in. Not just Elohim, but the name Jehovah is brought in. And here is God. We get the picture of him kind of like crouching over this this clay mold that he's working on. We see him molding and fashioning it and and putting all the... all of the elements in place the way he wanted to build something. He was making something that would be formed in his image to bear his image and his likeness. And so, and so he personally molded out the first human body out of that clay. He formed man. Man to be a useful vessel for himself, for his use and glory. A man to be a beautiful vessel. A vessel of beauty and honor and dignity would stand above all the rest of his creation. And he could put him in dominion, have dominion over all of the works of his hands. This is, this is my man. I made him. A man to have value. But what do we see now? What do we see in this man, this man that's described here? How sad, how pathetic to contemplate Judas as a as a uh, example of manhood. Is he useful? No, no. <laughs> He's he, He's broken, and neck and body is ripped off. I mean, he's a, it's a disaster. Is he beautiful? No. Well, no, you can't see any beauty in a man's bowels gushed out and spilled all over the ground. What kind? Of, it's grotesque. You couldn't even run it. You couldn't even look at it. Valuable? How much value can you find in Judas Iscariot? And he's quite dead, beginning to rot. He's about to be the first body in the field of the anonymous. What caused such a tragedy? Was it his love of money and his love of self? Surely that played its role, didn't it? In poor Judas, he loved money. Oh, the deceitfulness of riches. How has mankind gone after the deceitful riches? Think of our world. You don't don't have to spend long in any kind of media without advertising hammering away at you. Oh, how we have given our souls for riches, huh? He thought he was being so clever. He thought he was being so clever, making it uh, a real advantage for himself 30 pieces of silver but John tells us it was the devil himself that put that idea in his heart it was the devil's idea to go after riches to go after the money to sell his soul for a field (laughs) the 
purchase price of a field, and that a worthless potter's field. That's what he ends up with. Riches, houses, fields, only to find out that the treasures turn out to be Acheldama, field of blood. Young person, old person, all of us, be reminded of the transientness and the deceitfulness of riches, of well, of material things, of this material world. It's Acheldama, the field of blood. What a contrast to Lord Jesus. He didn't go after 30 pieces of silver, did he? We don't know that he had any. When he asked, when he wanted to see a coin, he had to ask the people there, show me a coin. The disciples had a little purse that they carried, that Judas carried for them. Is he somehow trumped even Levi or Matthew? <laughs> who was a tax collector. He knew about money and how to, how to count it and so forth. But, but Matthew had seen the Lord. Matthew had come to love the Lord Jesus. I don't want nothing to do with this money stuff. Somebody else take care of that. I've had too much of that in my life. That has been my nemesis all my life. That has entrapped me for years. And I'm only now set free from the love of money from the, by the Lord Jesus himself. Matthew didn't want that purse. <laughs> but Judas was happy to take over <laughs> because Judas loved money. Judas had not found the Lord Jesus, had not been delivered from the bondage to material things, to this life, to this, to me, to me, to me. How we are enslaved by ourselves to sin. No. The Lord Jesus did not have any money. Now, he was taken down from the cross by loving hands. Notice the difference. Poor, poor Judas. They both hung, so to speak. And what a difference. What a difference. He had done no violence, the Lord Jesus. Neither was any deceit in his mouth. Judas, he had done violence, hadn't he? Betraying his very friend, his close friend, his teacher, and the one and the lover of his soul, he had betrayed him. He had done violence, hadn't he? He had done deceit. He came to the Lord Jesus with a kiss. And that was his method to betray him. How deceitful is that? Oh, when you take when you take the expressions of love and use them deceitfully how wicked is that that's the epitome of wickedness and of foulness that is wickedness and what about his body his corpse it was evidently like I said the first one buried in that common grave the grave of the anonymous if you would look for his body you can't find either body buried anymore, right? The Lord Jesus was raised from the dead in glory. Judas's rotted in absolute obscurity and no one could care less what happened to his body. He's forgotten.
lays there in the field of blood. He went, says, uh, says uh, Peter, to his own place. What will it be? What will it be? <coughs> what will you give your life for? Silver or a savior? What will we sell ourselves for? A field of blood or eternal glories in heaven with Christ? That's what the story of Judas wants to bring before us in, in, in graphic and difficult details. Some people think there's a contradiction between Matthew and Luke or in Acts where he burst asunder and his bowels gushed out. I don't see any conflict there in my mind. He hung himself, like Matthew said. The rope was probably a little on the long side. When he hit the bottom of that rope, <laughs> man, the impact was so great that it tore his body wide open and out came all his guts on the ground. That's the way I see it. It was a... Where's the branch broke? <laughs> something went wrong. May God deliver us from that kind of fate. Not that we worry about, you know, exactly having our bowels gushed out on the ground. But the fate of being an anonymous, dead human in the field of blood, forever forgotten from eternity, from God himself. May we instead be with Christ where he is and forever rejoicing in the deliverance that he has brought us from the bondage to the sin of our own selves and our greed for money. Father, forgive us for uh, how weekly this was presented. I pray that you'll help us to uh, appreciate the things in your word very deeply. Oh, we thank you. Oh, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. We'll consider that next time, if you will. But uh, what a wonderful thing it is that he teaches us from the word. And may we heed, take heed to this teaching. Oh, help us and deliver us from uh, greed and, uh, and pride and the love of money and the, dis- and the love of this world and all that is in the world. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is, it's of the world. It's not of thee. And it's passing away. Help us to be like those who do the will of God and abide forever. Father, we pray that you'll teach us the lessons you would have for us. May your spirit speak to our hearts and may we be responsive. Oh, help us to be responsive and obedient. Lead us, we pray in Jesus' name.